All right, here we are. Welcome back. Welcome back. Uh, here we to, are. Here we are to science in between. That's where we, that's where we are. That's that's who we are or what well, we are. It's one of those. Or, or where how we are. are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is episode seventy-two. Seventy-two. I'm always so, shocked by the, the the fact that we just we're still in doing this. Yeah. You know, yeah, maybe the, we should like. When the pandemic is officially over, whenever that happens, I don't know. Officially over? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. We'll have to reevaluate. Who knows? <laughs> okay. When when COVID is eliminated. <laughs> yeah. It's no longer a thing. Hey, this is Ollie and that is Scott. Yes, it is. Uh, and uh, as we said, this is Science in Between. And this is a podcast where we just talk about science and science teaching and and whatever other nonsense we feel like sometimes, but yeah. And and I my personal opinion is that some people are here for the nonsense because they like it. They hear like the fact that you and I are are, are stupid. Yeah, um, yeah. I I feel like I was thinking this this morning as I was walking my dog that um I feel like we've been dialing back on the silly lately. So I think we may have to think about that, and you know, just yeah. because we don't want to lose any of our core listeners by becoming too <laughs> serious. Because really, oh. we can't afford to lose any. Right now, it's like <laughs> I mean, we're we're really bumping along on the bottom yeah. end of the the. Uh... If they listed uh, like the rankings uh, uh, in terms of listenership of all the podcasts in the world, yes, that, that we're, that'd we're, be humbling. We are what is called the long tail. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the very end of the long tail. It's all good. It's all good. It's all good. Because that's hey, not so, why we're here. We're here no. because we like talking to each other and because of our our core listeners who love us silly or not. And I think the other thing is that we personally find a lot out of, you know, unpacking these concepts as we talk about them. Sure. You know, and so we're trying to do sense making. Oh, God. I know. You see how I did that? I did it. I did. I did. <laughs> I, got, I came back around. <laughs> We're starting to become like an old married couple. Like, uh, <laughs> here he goes again. <laughs> yes. Uh, I was just that, I was just showing my family the uh scene from Letterkenny where they talk about dad noises with Squirrely Dan and Oh yeah. Was, oh my god. So we were good. just watching some Letterkenny last night. But we are like totally going down the rabbit yeah. hole. But the, yeah. I Let's was trying to get back, us back on track. I was okay. trying you were, to you were doing a fine job. Sense making well, I don't know. A stretch well, it's a part of it yeah. it's part of it right that's, that's part okay of it. go ahead do your do your magical transition to our topic no the the what we've been i don't know kind of prefacing the last few weeks is that we're gonna have a uh a, a conversation around equity in science education and yes. um some of the practices and 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 we've been talking around this like i guess in uh I don't know, we did that series of equitable you know practices for diverse classrooms we talked about like ambitious science teaching was part of that conversation, but I think that um, our goal today is to maybe do it in a, in a broader, you know, why, why is equity necessary in science education and what are some things we should be thinking about as science teachers to, to really promote the most equitable learning environments that we can. Um, and we're going to draw on some, some work from, you know, Jessica Thompson and April Lumen and others in our conversation today and, and you know, connected back to the uh, next generation science standards. Cause I think uh, equity is a big part of that too. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's like sort of frame it and sense-making is part of that, like using, 
you know, the classroom environment as a sense-making space um, or promoting it as a sense-making space rather than, um, you know, just like throwing out like, I don't know, the death march with fun sauce. Yeah, we don't want any more of that. No. No, and it's been, I mean, I think it's really interesting because, um, you know, as part of the Pennsylvania uh, standards process, like equity was something we talked about a lot in in that set of standards as well. And I think one of the tricky things, and maybe we'll talk about this in the learning progressions episode when we get to that as well, is thinking about this balance between equity and um, rigor, I guess, uh, depending on how you want to define sure. rigor. But this question, and I think, you know, NGSS struggled with this. Like one of the criticisms of NGSS is that the the equity is an appendix to the to the main body document. So it's appendix D about all yeah. standards, all students. And everyone's like, well, come on, if equity is really central to what we do, how, why is it in appendices? And why is it uh, appendix number four, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I thought that too. So it, yeah, I mean... But it's, it's, uh, it, yeah, it's just really, it's really interesting to think about this tension between how do you have respect for all kids and their ideas and their cultural backgrounds, and also um, think about science as uh, canonical and having disciplinary uh, core ideas and practices and all of those other things. Like those, those things on some level feel like they're in tension with each other. Um, and maybe they are intention, but not in a bad way, um, in a way that tension means that they pull slightly in opposite directions and you have to find the right place in that tension to work. Um, because you don't, I mean, you don't want to have science instruction abandon science and just be about, um, you know, whatever kids are thinking about, right? Because yeah. that's not science anymore. That's just, I don't know what that is. That's an exploration of the world, which isn't a bad thing, but isn't science. And I think science is a meaningful thing for kids to learn about and understand. And then the other end of the spectrum is, is where we mostly are now, which is a real focus on just the canonical ideas of science without much respect for um kids ideas, right? That that's sort of, well, yeah, I mean, kids have ideas long enough for us to understand what they are so we can get rid of the bad ones and keep the good ones and, yeah. um, and purge, purge yeah, those bad ideas, those misconceptions, get them sure. out of their heads and, uh, you know, get the misconception scrubber. That's what we should invent. We need like oh. a, like a, maybe a car wash where you go through and it washes away you all your misconceptions. The yeah. Nice. You come out the other side and you're ready. You're like tabula rasa, but you've still got all your right ideas. You just don't have any of your wrong ideas. Well, that's a, that's an awesome metaphor for what we don't want to happen. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But it is pretty awesome. Yeah. I mean, as long as we're the ones writing the list of, you know, what's right and wrong on the inside. Sure. Right. I mean, well, I think, you know, one of the things that I, I think is important for us to talk about at the start of this conversation is that, you know, equity is a pretty I worry that sometimes when people hear the discussion around equity, they're just thinking about, okay, we want to make the space more di diverse for a population. And they maybe are thinking, you know, we have typically science has not been, you know, an open space for you know, people of color and for women. Um, but it's broader than that. I mean, equity 
is, you know, thinking about different people, uh, people with different abilities. Right. Um, and, you know, yeah. that's, cer- that's certainly a thing that we have to uh, consider, because, I mean, we have students who come in as English language learners and we have students who come in as, you know, maybe they use a wheelchair or maybe they use, you know, they have different levels of abilities and different abilities. And I think we have to be really open minded that equity is a broad, broad umbrella. Yeah. And I think one of the things uh, one of the things to that to think about um, is is to think about equity less in terms of identity, um, because I think that's where we get into that trap that you're describing where, you know, it has it has in some sense, it has the same flavor as um, as the misconceptions trap that we can fall into, which is like, okay, well, we have these kinds of diversity things we need to worry about, right? So we need to worry about race and ethnicity, or we were, we need to worry about ability and we need to worry about language and we need to worry about, and, and so we're going to develop pedagogies that address these particular things in very specific ways. And pretty soon you're down the road again of misconceptions where it's like, well, we have 15,000 different pedagogies for all these different, you know, we have the LBGTQ identity issues and we have, you know, it's like, well, that, while while I understand on some level the the um, impetus behind that, it's it's the same problem with so many problems that we have in education that we start by creating buckets of things, and then thinking that well once we've identified all these different buckets now what we can do is develop targeted responses to those different buckets so. Whether that's we're going to create a list of misconceptions and then figure out how to deal with them, or then we're going to, you know, figure out different kids' ability levels in terms of, you know, giving them a test about their IQ, or whether that's, you know, these, you know, equity issues. Like we we create a taxonomy of stuff um, to try and categorize things or people in certain ways because we think that's going to allow us to better respond to them. And, um, and, you know, all evidence seems to be that that's not necessarily a healthy approach to, to teaching. Well, it's funny that you say that because uh, on the, uh, on the NGSS site in, you know, connected with appendix D they have like seven case studies that are broken down specifically by that identity. Yep. Right. They have one that's like, economically disadvantaged they have another one race ethnicity uh, i think case study number five is the one that makes me just kind of pause it's just girls yeah i girls. mean you know they're weird let's yeah. give them their own category girls <laughs> but but i think what it does i mean from a good side is it does help to um identify the fact that this is a much more encompassing um concept of a, the diversity and equity um but i think the other part is that there's they present them as being unique strategies for working for each one of these populations as if, you know, some of these things don't, you know, cross over. Um, and, and like you say, there's these buckets, we're putting this taxonomy together of like, here's the things we have to do with this group. Here's the things we have to do with this group, you know? So some of that's. Right. And that, and that there isn't, and I think what we're talking about here is, is there, is there some kind of core to um, to what we think about when we think about equity. So it, it, do, do we have to break it down to say like, okay, this is how you work with, socio, uh, with uh, economically disadvantaged students. And this is how we 
work with students from major racial and ethnic groups and, you know, blah, and these are, sorry, I should say blah, 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 girls. Oh yeah. <laughs> I forgot girls. And then, you know, and then you've got the gifted and talented, and then you've got the other special education students. And, you know, it's, it's, um, it's just a really, uh, I don't know. It's a really odd way to think about it. I think from my perspective now, I, I, again, I understand why that is the approach, but I think, you know, if you look at, um, you know, a friend of the show, Brian Brown's work that we refer to constantly, um, you know, I mean, I think he had, he does not take that perspective. Now he is focused in in particular on one of these groups um, to some degree in the sense that he's really interested in, in kids who have different cultural backgrounds than the typical normative canonical science backgrounds or scientists backgrounds. Um, but that said, I don't think he, he is explicitly limiting it to, you know, just racial and ethnic groups. He's really talking about experiences and what kids bring to the classroom. So I think that when we think about equity or talk about equity, I think a lot of what we do is, is start with that idea, um, that, that really this is, you know, as you said at the top, this is about sense-making and how do we support kids in, in sense-making in science um, with the understanding that kids bring lots of different things as a tool set uh, to that sense-making process when they come to your classroom. And so part of your job as a teacher is is to recognize that and, and really, um, you know, dig into supporting them developing their own ideas um, and not unguided, not just whatever they want to think about, but really focused. Um, so I think that's sort of the, the, where that tension comes in. Sure. I think one of the things that we, we might want to do at this point in the conversation is to bring in that C2S stuff because yeah, that's the work yeah. that, because I think that, that that'd be a good way of framing some of this, because I think that, you know, we're talking about a, in a lot of ways, principle one, that they, this is the uh, C2ASK is, um, it's a great acronym for critical and cultural approaches to ambitious science teaching. So this is the work that we, we talk about with uh, Jessica Thompson and, and others and April Lumen, who is generally a fan, friend of the show, right? Yeah. Yeah. Whether <laughs> she knows it or not. Whether she knows it or not. And we should effort try to get in her on the show because I think she'd yeah. be awesome. She would. Um, and but so what the what they talk about is they present four different principles. And the first one, I think, is what we're really talking around. Right. I think we're talking around this idea is that we as science educators have to really spend some time thinking about our own biases and thinking about our, our prejudices and our uh, and, and, and how that is going to frame um, what our classrooms are going to look like and the kind of pedagogies we're going to include. And I think that's a really important starting point. Um, for, you know, any teacher, especially one who's, you know, equity minded. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I think it, it's, it's interesting that, um, and, and we'll put a link in the show notes to this, but it's, um, it's Jessica Thompson, Krista Marr, Heather Johnson, Deanna Scipio and April Lumen wrote, um, and they, they wrote a piece in, um, in the NSTA uh, journal, the science teacher, but it, it's based on work that was in a book that I co-edited uh, about teacher preparation. Same same group of authors wrote uh, about us about this idea, um, and and really it is this trying to characterize. So one of the critiques of ambitious science teaching, to some degree, has been that 
uh, it's not ex- is the same critique we just talked about with NGSS, right? Is that it's not explicitly centering equity in in meaningful ways. And so I think part of the this uh, work that um, Jessica and and colleagues are doing is trying to um, really be explicit about how uh, ambitious science teaching does center that stuff. Um, by layering a set of principles uh, that that are that guide the work of ambitious science teaching, so I think this this first one, like you're talking about, Ali, I think the interesting thing about it that I think is important uh, to think about is it really is this idea of um, you know teachers have to do work on themselves. So this isn't mm-hmm. just I need to understand my kids, which is principle two, but principle one is really saying, I need to understand my own positionality. I need to understand my own relationship to my identities and my relationship between the identities that I have and and the identities of the students that I teach and how that creates um, bias and issues of power and privilege and all of those things. And really um, having to unpack that a little bit and understand it is, is, is foundational work. Like you, you can't ignore that part. And I think it is something that we're increasingly doing in teacher education is asking, uh, you know, beginning teachers to do that work of understanding like who they are, who, what their identity is, how it's been constructed and and how it relates to other identities uh, in the world. Not again, to, to categorize a bunch of different identities, but understand that those identities position you in particular ways. If you're a girl in our society, that positions you differently than if you're a boy, um, and and there's there's no sort of way around that, um, and and so understanding that, especially if you're going to be a teacher of children, is incredibly important. Yeah, and I think that you don't have to do this in isolation. I mean, this is one of the uh, recommendations they they make in in their article is that you know do this with with some colleagues find some critical friends i mean we've that's been a theme of the show too is you know that we surround ourselves with smart people who you know push us and challenge us and and i think that's one of the ways of getting at this we're not asking you to you know go off and you know you know meditate although that right. could be a process um yeah. but it's it's not the only way of getting there not only way of uh having you you know, consider and attend to some of your, your biases, because here's the thing, we all have them. Even the, the people who work at this and think about this a lot still have biases and still have uh, prejudices. And it's just, you know, uncovering those helps us deal with them. You know, yeah. we, we exist in the world. And so we develop our prejudices, not just because we're, you know, we're hateful people. It's just that we, you know, we interpret the experiences of our lives and sometimes ways that, you know, come to false conclusions and, and those things can, you know, inform our actions with other people um, and sometimes in, in unhealthy ways. Yeah. I mean, humans are really good pattern finders. It's our, one of our great things. It's also our curse, right? Because we, we create those patterns and we create these abstractions about the world and then we assume that they're always true. And that that sequence of events is what really gets us into trouble, right? Which is yeah. like, oh, I've had a bad experience with this kind of person. Therefore, those kind of people are bad people, right? And, and that's the simplest version. But there's a lot more other nuanced versions of that. And then also the fact that 
because we're social creatures, we, as you said, we live in a culture. And so some of those things happen even without those experiences. We just get them from the culture that we're, that we're in. And that, that means big C culture, like the culture surrounding you of media and all those things. But it's also the little C culture of your family and how they behave yeah. around other people and how they talk about other people. And um, so so this this is the challenge that you have to understand is that everybody grows up in some context that you have a family, what, however you define that you have people that influence you and you have a culture and that culture happens on many different levels and understanding that is important to understanding who you are and and if you don't know who you are you can't be a good teacher because Again, if there's one theme to this show, it's that teaching is relational yeah. and, and to have good relationships with other people, you have to understand something about yourself. Well, here's the, I, I'd say, I was trying to think about like a test that someone could do at home to check, check to see if you're a teacher. <laughs> like a Turing test? of something. Yeah, here it is. Here it is. Like, this is, I think the teacher bias test. If you okay. can ask a teacher, here it is. You know, if you've ever said, okay, I will never name my child this because of a student, right? Yeah. Like, like there are like a list of names I will ne- I would have never named my child yes. because of students I've had. Yes. That is bias Yeah. Right, right there. In a, in a nutshell, that's how like there are, and I'm not even going to name the kid. No, the you're name. not. I'm no. not. No, that's but there, there, like there are specific names I will never use because, be, and, and what it like, those are disconnected, right? Those are like, sure. absolutely. But it's like the, the concern that if I named my kid, you know, Scott, yeah. <laughs> you know, oh, using God. you, no, I know, don't but, do that. but if I had named my kid, Scott, it would be this, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy that they right. might end up like this Scott that I had, yeah. you know? Well, it's yeah. like, it's like the old saying, I don't know if you, you had this, I, I don't know even know where this came from, but the idea that like you, if you name your kid, Elliot, he'll be a paste eater. That was like a, I don't, they don't even have paste anymore, but, but that used to be a thing. Like if you, oh yeah, you don't name your kid, Elliot, it'll be, he'll eat paste. It's like, what does that even mean? But yeah, there was this idea that like your name is your identity and, and right. therefore your destiny. But I know lots of teachers who have that sort of like oh, that sure. mantra. I am never going to name my child this because of this kid. Yeah. And that is your bias. That is a bias, one of many biases, right? right? For sure. Yeah. So the, I, I guess it, it might be helpful for us to, you know, walk through some of the other things that, you know, April and Jessica and those other, the other folks present in their article. Because like the, the first one's attending to your own, you know, biases, understanding yourself. And the next one's really about understanding the students. And, and I think the assets they bring to the table, right? And, and I, I think that's the other thing um, they bring to the classroom, uh, the assets. Like, because I think that the, the article that we're referencing here is, it, you know, comes from at it comes at a lot of this not from a deficit perspective like these that these are the things you have to overcome right but it's like these are the things you can attend to as you're teaching and and to think about as as you're developing your lessons and creating a learning environment in your classroom and i think that's a a powerful way to look at it and that's another i say common theme of our show is that to, to to view students as as assets rather than deficits yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, principle two, we've actually talked a fair bit about sure. um, in terms of that, you know, that, you know, sort of recognizing that kids bring things to the classroom. I think uh, principle three is interesting. And I think p- potentially one of the more challenging ones, because it talks right. about designing for each student's full participation 
in the culture of science. And I think one of the pieces that they sort of see as central to this is um, really driving the curriculum using phenomena that are meaningful to kids uh, and their and ha- allowing kids to sort of co-create what's going on in the classroom. And while I agree with this principle, I think it is one of the really hard ones to do, um, especially that aspect of it. Right. I mean, um, there are other pieces of it, like, you know, um, uh, respecting kids sense-making repertoires is the way they describe it. Right. Which, um, and those things are to me easier to do, but this idea of really thinking about, what would a science classroom look like where the phenomenon that you're investigating are ones that have been um, sort of co-identified and created um, by the teacher and the students? I, I, I mean, I think that's a great idealized goal. I sometimes worry that 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 goal can can be um, can put off uh, potentially really meaningful changes in instruction because people think that that's just going to be too hard. So it feels like that's a thing down the road, but I don't know that that's one that I've struggled with. And, and a number of the folks who, who are, um, you know, authors in this article, particularly uh, Kirsten and April, I know have, um, have really done hard work around this. Um, Kirsten's in Hawaii and, uh, and does work with, you know, indigenous learning there and, and indigenous knowledge and, and has done some really cool work. And, uh, and April has done some really interesting work connecting to community problems, uh, and sort of scientific, um, issues that the community is facing. So I think it can be done. Um, and I'm certainly not saying you shouldn't see that as a goal, but I think it, it puts into tension, this idea of, of, uh, you know, how do you develop those kinds of phenomenon within your community, um, while also recognizing that you have certain curricular goals that you have to accomplish and how do, how do you yeah. keep those, how do you figure that out? And it can, again, I, you can do it. I just think that that's a hard one, but I think this idea of designing for, for this, not just recognizing that kids have these capacities, but actually thinking about how you design your instruction around them. I think that's a really powerful idea. Yeah. And as I'm looking through these four principles, I wonder whether like, like I know these are specific to to science education, but I also go like these are four principles that can be applied to any teaching and learning environment. Right. Like eh, eh, these are things that I think if you're teaching math, you should consider these things. If you're teaching social science, social studies, absolutely. I mean, because yeah, really. like the the last one, the last principle is about challenging the culture of science through social and restorative justice. Um. Like, think about that lens, not necessarily from a culture of science, but a culture of history and a culture of, you know, social studies, you know, from the lens of, you know, social and restorative justice. It's like, oh, you know, I mean, I I think that while these are really powerful in science, they're powerful in in other areas, too. Yeah. Um, And I I think that's that's not surprising, given the sort of arc of this of our our talk here on this show is, you know, there, there are connections, there are natural connections, especially when we're talking about the big themes of teaching and learning that, that will connect across and won't be science specific. I mean, I think the, the thing about principle four that's particularly um, critical in this context is uh, in the, in this context being the science context is 
science has contributed, and we talked about this with that APA um, piece that where they came out and talked about their contribution to inequity and racism. Um, science has had a, as a discipline, a unique position in in this equity um, world. In that we have we have scientified many of these ideas that are pernicious and dangerous and bad about, for example, race, um, but also ability and other things, um, you know, gender issues. uh, And so, you know, science has had a real role in the defining of these identities, which then get used to position some groups of people as less than and other groups of people as more than. Um, And so I think science really has to take a hard look. It's not just about the fact that most scientists are white men. It's about the fact that because most scientists are are and have been white men, they've created a lot of the the, um, immorality and, and inequality inequality that exists. And, and this, this is also why often marginalized groups are distrustful of science, right? I mean, it's one of the problems I know nationally here in the U S uh, getting African-American and, and other black uh, Americans um, vaccinated is they have a fundamental distrust of, of the medical system because it's not been very fair no. to them and not, not, you know, done pretty horrific things uh, to them in the past. And so I think there's, you don't have to go very far, right? You could talk to the Tuskegee experiments. You could talk about the immortal life of Henry Lacks. Those are just, you know, when I think that's a part of history that a lot of folks don't know out, you know, outside of science, you know, we, we in science know this, and maybe if you're, you know, involved with like, the institutional review boards at your institutions, maybe you know that stuff. But I think the the African American community and and people of color have a much more um, personal connection to this, or at least not maybe if if they don't know the history, they do know it from you know their own communities and their own families, and and the the fact that you know they, I mean, like if you've watched the movie with the immortal life of Henry Lacks. Um, they, they, they wouldn't go to the hospital. They wouldn't go to um, the one hospital in outside of uh, DC because they were like, okay, we don't go there. Yeah, Johns Hopkins. Johns yeah. Hopkins. That's right. That's the hospital mm-hmm. that was that, uh, featured there. And they were like, we don't go there because that's not the, that's not our hospital. Cause right. we, we, we lose people when we go there. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and that is a, you know, a tradition that's handed down. Right. And um yeah. Well, yeah, it circles back to this idea of culture, right? And and what culture means, right? It, we we have families and communities, and and they help us understand the world by teaching us patterns that they've identified, and now are helping us learn, right? And so, and those patterns can be helpful, and those patterns can be unhelpful. Um, but there's still patterns that you learn, and I'm not saying these. It's an unhelpful pattern to for for black folks to mistrust Johns Hopkins um and i think Johns Hopkins has tried to make amends to some degree on the on that um but but it is you know i mean they, these kinds of experiments have have uh have had a real toll on on these communities and they recognize it not surprisingly and um and so i think this idea of challenging the culture of science um 
is is something that that is imp- an important part of how we think about science education, which again goes back to this being in tension with what is the tension between canonical science and the knowledge base that's there and um, the the inequities and and uh, the you know the badness that has been produced by that canonical right. science um, and how do we think about that and how do we work as a science education community to to recognize and overcome that and try and create spaces that um, that are more equitable. I, I think that the the best part of this this article we keep talking about this in an article with uh, Jessica Thompson at all. Um, but I think that the the last part is that they present some questions for for you as a, as a, as a science educator to do some of the heavy lifting and do some of the you know self assessment and planning you know reflections to like help help guide you through this process and and so if you're um, somebody who's who, who's interested in doing this kind of work um, and we should be we all should be um, yep. check those out because I think that can help you help guide some of your work. Um, and, and some of it's like just doing some soul searching and some of it is like reconsidering um, how you plan your, your lessons, how, what your classroom environment's gonna look like, how you direct um, student learning and how you help to you know, facilitate student learning in your classroom. Yeah, it's, yeah. it seems pretty simple, but it's a lot of hard, a lot of hard work there. Yeah, you know? well, it's, it's like many of the things we talk about, right? Is that they are, they seem like subtle shifts in some regard, but they actually are pretty tectonic, uh, uh, massive changes that need to happen in your practice. Um, and yeah, and, and we'll post this. It, apparently NSTA has this just available for free up online, which, um, which I think is great. So, um, so you don't need to be a member. You can download the PDF, um, or read it online and we'll and put a, that link in there. Yeah. It's a relatively recent article. I think it came out yeah. in October of 2021. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's, it's great. It's a, uh, you can download it as a PDF, share it with your friends. You know, this is a, a great way to maybe frame some conversations in your schools. You know? Yeah. And there's, we'll put a couple other things in there. We'll put the appendix D um, from the, the NGSS case studies. and well, yeah, like maybe the case studies, right. uh, but we'll certainly the link to it. And then the other thing we'll put in there is, um, the NSTA has a thing about sense making that centers equity um, and they have some tools and some other um, examples that they've posted on their website that sort of talks about phenomena and students ideas and practices, but then also um, positions equity at the center of that. So, um, so this is, you know, this isn't a fringe movement to try and center equity in science education. This is, you know, NSTA and GSS, um, the science education community broadly is trying to to figure this out um, and 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 really in meaningful ways. So absolutely, yeah. All right, cool. Look at that. Well, yeah. All right, you have any joys? You can transition uh, to some uh, joys. I got a joy. You do? I do. Yeah, I got it. I'm going to go first this week. All right, rock and roll. All right. Um, so this week we made, a, or I made actually, because I'm traditionally the maker of this thing, uh, we made a something that is a traditional uh, holiday desserty thing that we don't, we haven't made, I think, we didn't make last year anyway, but the, uh, these are butterhorns, oh. and uh, they, they have a long history in my family going back to um, my great-grandmother at least, um, and 
my grandmother is the one that I really remember making them and she would make them whenever I came to visit her. And, um, which, you know, they're, they're basically sort of like crescent rolls, if you imagine crescent mm-hmm. rolls, but they're, um, but they're, uh, puffier, uh, sort of white, whiter dough they they don't look quite as golden, like a croissant or something. They, they're more, um, they're more, um, I don't know what the right word is cakey, I guess, but, um, and they've got sugar and, um, cinnamon and butter on the inside. And then they're frosted with like just, you know, vanilla frosting and they're very good. And when I, that my biggest memory from when I was a kid is I would go to see my grandma when I was in college, actually, this was later. Um, well, it was throughout my life, but so, so the, the recipe makes three dozen of these things. So there's a lot of them. Um, and when I would go to visit my grandmother, especially, I remember when, like I said, when I would go in college and, uh, I'd be the only one there visiting them for a while. And they would, my grandmother would make 36 of these things and she and my grandfather would have like one or two. And then I had to finish the other 34. So, um, <laughs> so it was, uh, or whatever, 30. So, uh, so it was, it was brutal. Uh, but you know, it was a, it was something that I undertook, uh, because, you know, I have a sweet yeah. tooth basically is what it amounts to, but these things are, you know, I can put a link to a recipe if I can find one, um, or I'll put a recipe in there or something, but, um, they're, you know, they're yeast raised sort of little rolls and, uh, and they, they bring me a little bit of joy this time of year. That's nice. I think I've seen them make it on like, uh, the great British baking show or something. Oh, so have something. they? I all think right. they might have something, something like that. Uh, all right. So my joy, I, I got Apple TV plus recently oh, um, right. after, you know, I was trying to hold it off in, at, at bay. I, I didn't want to sign up for another subscription service, but I got it. And so we're kind of working through some things, you know, working through some of the series that we've been like, oh, we should watch this or we should watch this. Um, so we finished Ted Lasso, which is as good oh. as God has recommended. Um, oh. It's been a joy at least twice for him um so it is absolutely you know and what's funny was we were watching it and my son who's you know 15 and pretty much dismissive of anything that his parents would want to watch or do um got sucked in he walked by and was like what's this and he told and he's not a sports kid so it's like you know but he was in he's like can we watch it from the beginning i'm like (laughs) absolutely Absolutely, Uh, but um but the thing I, I want to share for my joy is uh, a series called 1971. Mm. Um, you know, I'm a big music person and 1971 is the music that changed the world, the year that changed the, the world in music or something like that. It's about how this was an uh, important shift from, you know, whenever there was all of this, you know, the you know, season of love, all of the hippie music movie movement. And then 1971 ushered in a new era with a lot of singer songwriter, people like Carol King and James Taylor. And this is whenever um, Aretha Franklin uh, releases her amazing grace album. And like mm-hmm. there's, and there, and how it created this really to use that, that tectonic shift in music um, because of the politics that was happening at the time, the, you know, and, and the fact that there had been all of these protests that have been happening and some of the musicians were just like kind of checking out and doing, and doing a lot of introspection. 
Um, and it's just really fascinating. And if you're a fan of music, especially music of that time period of which I am, um, you know, like the Joni Mitchells, this uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash and, and James Taylor and all that. It's yeah. just like, and it's, it's so good. And um, yeah, and they interview a lot of uh, different folks, musicians and Rolling Stone writers and, and all this. It's just awesome. And it's just, has put like lots of like you know songs in my head or you yeah. know where i was like going around singing you know carol king which that's never in my you know head but no. it's, a, it's in there now yeah you know? nice but, yeah no it's a, a totally good i mean I think there's like like 10 or 12 episodes and yeah each one's about an hour and they focus on different things and they're kind of intertwined but it's really awesome and and the cool thing is i think that there's also a lot of things that if you're, you know, in if you're thinking about some of the other movies and things that have come out, like there's, you'll see some cross pollination, like, you know, Judas and the Black Messiah, which came out last year. Some of those folks are like, even though it's a little bit of a later time period than that, you know, you can see that there's like some of this cross pollination with Black Panthers and with, you know, other things. And yeah, it's just, um, it's just, I think, part of the public culture right now, kind of yeah. like, like that you know, examining that era. And maybe it's because it was 50 years ago. I don't know, but it's there. Yeah. yeah. Two generations. Yeah. Crazy. All right, cool. I'll add yeah, that to my list. Definitely. Definitely. Well, I'm glad, you, I'm glad you liked Ted Lasso and I'm glad Enzo did too. So that's good. Oh, it's so good. It is yeah. so good. Yeah. We can spend a whole day just talking about Ted Lasso. Okay. I think what we could do is what does Ted Lasso teach us about science education? Yeah. That would be a conversation. Yeah. Well, oh. I, I, yeah, I took one piece directly from there though. He quotes somebody else, but I have a, I have a thing that I stole directly that I used this fall as part of my class and, and last spring actually too. So yeah, yeah. I, th- I think there might be uh, lots that we can learn. Lots. We'll put that on the, you know, special episode, special episode, Ted Lasso, science education. Boom. Boom. Uh, books. Yeah. All right. Well, hey. All right. There we go. Here we go. Another episode in the can. 72. Nice. Catch you next time. In between. See you then. Bye now.